Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast. It's a true honor to have you all here again with me. Uh, today, we've, uh, we've sort of flown across the pond, really, and I'm talking to a colleague all the way in British Columbia in Canada. It's a huge honor. I love connecting with police officers around the world. I love connecting with leaders around the world. Uh, and uh, you might think that culturally we'll be so different, but when it comes to leadership, you know, it's pretty much the same. And particularly when it comes to policing, there's always that affinity that we have. So I'm going to really enjoy this conversation. Today we've got with us uh, Deputy Chief Constable Jennifer Highland, who is the Deputy Chief Constable of Surrey, BC. Not to be confused with Surrey Police Force in the United Kingdom. This is Surrey, BC. Surrey, British Columbia in Canada. And it's actually a brand new police force. Jennifer has been Deputy Chief Constable uh, since January 2021 there, previously worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, I'm going to ask Jennifer to talk to us about her background. But first, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us in, and taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you, Cole. It's uh, my pleasure and very exciting, actually, to be uh, part of this. It's, it's funny because I know that you... Uh, you just referenced the uh, not Surrey UK, but Surrey BC. Um, I have to share with you one of the reasons why I actually have so many connections uh, in the UK and around the world was on the very first day that I took my job here in Surrey. I took a photo of my nameplate on my door and it said Deputy Chief Constable Jennifer Highland. And I did a post on LinkedIn and I said, um, you know, I always wish that one day I would be able to change policing and today is day one in my new job. And for whatever reason, somebody in the UK uh, either followed me or connected or someone was connected and they said, oh my God, you've got this new deputy chief. And I guess a whole series of people at Surrey UK said they never told us that there is this woman coming and Canadian and what the heck is going on. So it started to go a little bit crazy on my LinkedIn. And so I had to post back. I, I apologize. It's actually Surrey, BC, Canada. We're a new <laughs> startup. But I ended up getting such a profile that I have connections. I have a challenge coin now from Surrey, uh, UK. Um, some of those police officers have reached out to me and they follow me now. And so it's a really, uh, it was kind of a slip up uh, and yet I feel like partly maybe you and I connected because of that initial incident because I have quite a, 
uh, connection over to the other side of the world now that I never had before. So it's funny how those things happen and work out. Absolutely. And be, to be very honest with you, Jennifer, when I first saw it and I thought, Jennifer Highland, Deputy Chief Constable of Surrey. My goodness. <laughs> so that's why I connected with you. And then I realized, hang on, this is not the Surrey that I know, you know. But how cool is that? You know, it's like uh, this affinity that police officers have with each other that when even when we don't know the person, we feel we feel obliged to connect and, and just know and be a part of somebody else's journey. You know, even seven years after leaving policing, I'm still very much interested in what police officers around the world are doing. So I'm particularly intrigued by this huge challenge that you got in front of you, Jennifer, about um, creating this brand new police force. I mean, how does that even work? The last time I went and saw a brand new police force was when I was asked to speak to the Ukraine police service. And uh, that was a, a new police force. But you've created a completely new police force that was to replace something. This is not to replace something. It's brand new. What does that look like? It's an interesting conversation. And, um, you know, my journey in policing, I started off as a municipal police officer in the city of New Westminster, which is just actually right across the bridge from Surrey. So it was a municipal police service, about 120 police officers when I got hired. I started there in 1998. Um, and the reason why I actually transitioned away from municipal policing had nothing to do with wanting to go to the RCMP. I actually met my husband there. And um, we started dating and then we broke up and it was 120 police officers. And I remember coming to work and looking around thinking, we're either going to stay broken up, in which case I do not want to work with my ex-boyfriend for the next 30 years, or we're going to get married, have kids and a mortgage, and I don't want to work with my husband for the next 30 years. <laughs> so I had about four years of service. And at that point in time, the RCMP was doing what they call lateral uh, transfers. So if you were an experienced police officer, they would take you right into the RCMP. Prior to 2001, they would make you go back to their training uh, system at depot. You'd go to Regina, Saskatchewan, go through six months of training. And I'd been a police officer for almost four years. I wasn't interested in doing that. But this particular year, they were looking for laterals. So I decided to put my name in for the RCMP and I transferred over. And my first posting ended up being Surrey, BC as an RCMP member. Um, so I worked in Surrey for five and a half years. And then I did a little bit of the Mountie uh, experience, which is you kind of bounce from post to post. Every few years, you go to a different location. So I never moved across the country, but I went from Surrey to Maple Ridge, where I was living, and then I went to North Van. Then I came back to uh, to Maple Ridge, and then it was in Maple Ridge about a year ago. Uh, you know, I was it twenty three years in my career, and the journey to where I am now started as a result of really taking stock of the way my policing career was unfolding. I started to pay a lot of attention to the way policing decisions were made. Uh, I was acutely aware of the very uh, difference in leadership styles. I was always a very inquisitive kid. Uh, my mom and my aunts always used to say, could she just stop, shut up and stop asking so many questions? I asked a lot of questions uh, growing up. I actually thought I was gonna go into law and ended up in policing. But the end journey ended up being as I was watching the process of Surrey getting started. It had been in the news for a couple of years before they actually had the first police officer. And I was watching, I was acutely aware of, uh, as it was unfolding, what was the leadership group gonna look like? And I believed it would make or break the way 
the transition and the creation unfolded, who the leadership was. And when uh, Norm Lipinski was named as the first chief uh, last December, I remember thinking, well, that's really interesting. I had known him for a few years, not really well, but we had worked both in the RCMP and then he had moved over to be a deputy in Delta. So, so through the BC Chiefs of Police, I come to know him a little bit and, and uh, his sort of leadership style and philosophy. And I actually got called by the headhunting company asking if I would put my name in mm -hmm. uh, to be a deputy. And I remember saying to the headhunting company, if Norma Lipinski wants Jennifer Highland to come and be one of his deputies, he knows what I'm about. He will phone and ask me. Otherwise, my belief was as the chief, he should surround himself with the people he connects to. About seven minutes later, my phone rang. It was Chief Lipinski. We spoke for about an hour. Um, I told him what I was looking for in the future of my leadership career. He told me what he was looking for. Uh, I put my name in the hat and uh, January 25th, I had signed the deal a few weeks later and, and started my job here. So, you know, when you talk about <clears throat> building from scratch, I had a real vision in my mind of what I wanted to do, but what I wanted to make sure we weren't about. One of the things that I that I talked to Chief Lipinski about was what was he actually hiring me for? Was he hiring me for operations? Was he hiring me for major crime investigations? Or was he hiring me for that sort of support services, culture, inclusion, respectful workplace, health and wellness? And that's what he was hiring me for. And so basically, I said to him, my intention was to create a police service unlike any other that really stepped beyond the boundaries of us being traditionally about what policing is known for, or at least highlight that we can be an organization that has soft skills, that it's not weakness, that it's strength, oh, wow. that we could be emotionally connected to not just our people, but the community and show that that was a real position of strength and influence and not weakness. And um, he basically said, run with it. And I've been doing that uh, for the last year ever since. So I'm really excited to tell you about some of the challenges, some of the amazing things we've done. Uh, but when you say how exciting it sounds to build from scratch, yes, it's exciting. It's extremely overwhelming as well. Uh, emotionally responsible for a lot of stuff. So uh, anyways, that's how I ended up getting to where I am. I, I just think, you know, there's a few things that you've said there that have just like sent chills down my spine. And, and one of those key things is that, uh, you know, when you talk about it is possible to create a functioning, high-performing police organization that is actually based around the soft skills, based around the emotional connection that we have with our citizens, with our communities, and with our peers and colleagues. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, my experience of policing has been that traditionally, that is not our approach. Wherever you go in the world, that's not our traditional approach. We tend to be very target driven because we have to face some of the greatest challenges in, in society. We tend to be a bit more hard faced. And we tend to be driven by the numbers and the targets more than anything else. So to sort of switch that thinking subtly to be focused more on the human relationships, I think is incredibly powerful. Uh, and I, I wish you well with that. So <laughs> in terms of the key challenges to change the mindset of the organization, well, create the mindset of the organization, you're not changing anything, you're just creating it from, which is even harder. What are the, what would you say are the top 
two or three priorities for you? To be honest, I mean, my, my key role in addition to culture was hiring uh, over 800 people. So to be really clear, the priority was if you hire the right leaders, if you hire people who have a philosophy and a belief that care and compassion are positions of actual strength in an organization, then not only will they lead that way, but they draw people who have that similar belief. And so for me, it was all about uh, having the right layers of leadership. And if we hired the right people, then the next layer of the right person would show up. And when I look at who is drawn to SPS, who's drawn to our organization, um, we've hired about 150 police officers so far. And when you look at the reasons when they're interviewed, why they're coming, why they're coming to our organization, they often reference the things that we have said publicly. They reference that the way we as various leaders have led. Uh, those are really strong points where people have said, I truly believe there's a better way of doing policing. And I see you guys seeing and doing those things. And I want to be part of that. So number one is if you don't surround yourself with people who it's not a catchphrase, it's easy to say this stuff. And that's the other thing. I've watched a lot of leaders know the words they need to say, but they actually, you can tell they don't mean it. You can tell they don't mean it Absolutely. because they don't understand the magnitude behind it. They can't really explain it. But more importantly, if you were to ask them to articulate, what does that actually look like day to day? Tell us when you've done that. What do you, when, when you say you're compassionate and you're emotionally connected to your people, give us an example when you did that yesterday. People who don't really mean it actually can't answer that question off the cuff. Um, and so the people that we are drawn here actually can answer that question, can give examples of it. And that's the reason why they're connected to us because they see us also doing those things. So the first thing for me was establishing this is what we're about, because if you're not about that, we're not interested in you. Like, we're not interested in people who need to fake it till they make it. You either believe that way or you don't. And to be fair, have we hired people that aren't necessarily bought into that way of being? 100% we probably have. My goal is that once those people are here, they become game changer people where they're like, you know, I wasn't sure I really bought into it. But now that I'm in the world, I realize there's value in it. So we're hoping for those that have come in that aren't really sort of born that way or made up that way, buy into it once they experience it. And and we hear from people who show up here, the experience has been more than they even anticipated it would be because it's very legitimate. It's, we're not, um, we didn't just say things to get people through the door. When they showed up, it was everything and more than they actually thought it would be. And then the second part about that, so I guess it's hiring the right people and making good on what we're saying. Like you can say all these things, but when people start showing up, if you're not following through, word gets out very quickly. And what's gotten out very quickly is they say that they conduct themselves a certain way and they actually follow through with it. And that's great. And there's so much that I can unpack in what you've just said there and resonates powerfully with me. Uh, one thing that you've said there, uh, and I've seen it time and time again, is where, where senior leaders within any organization say the right words because they know these are the words to be said, but actually don't necessarily believe them or even understand these words. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, kudos to you for for picking up on that and actually trying to move forward with that. The other thing that you've really brought out there is a, a strong value-driven culture. So 
you know, it's about having the integrity to do what you say you are going to do, to live your words, but then to have the values to make sure that everyone who comes into the organization as best as possible, because, you know, people are going to go through, you're going to miss some people, but as, as strongly as possible, as best as possible, you get people who accord with the culture, the values of the organization, what you stand for in SPS. In terms of your recruitment process, without unpacking the, the, the complete recruitment process, how do you try to ensure that the people that come through have got the right values? Yeah, because it's easy in an interview or on a document to say, you know, I'm an honest, ethical, uh, caring, compassionate person. Uh, some of our questioning, so we, we've done our interviews are very character-based interviews. So it's important to have to... I think there's two things that we look at in leadership and just in good police officers. You want people who are competent. Like we are in a very uh, powerful authoritarian position that we uh, have to recognize that we have in the community. We have, we, we carry lethal force options. Uh, we enforce the law. We have the ability to arrest uh, people and, uh, there's a lot that's packed up in there with the Charter of Rights and Human Rights. And so we're in positions where we need people who really are competent and understand not only how to do their job, but the ramifications of, of doing the job and decision making. So when we do our interviews, we want to make sure people are competent police officers. But you can be the most competent police officer in the world. And if you are not a good person, if you don't have the values and the ethics, that job itself is what results in corruption. And so there is a really important line in the way we do our hiring, where we want to make sure that you're able to do your job. But what comes through most strong is the values and ethics that you have. So we do very character-based interviewing where we're asking them, you know, when have you ever had to stand up to authority? When have you ever had to call out a situation that was unethical? How did you deal with that? Were you Did you have the courage and the strength to do what was right? Have you ever corrected a wrong? Have you admitted you've done anything wrong? What did you do when you'd done something wrong? So we really delve into the kind of questioning that I don't think is very common necessarily in policing because we're so focused on can they shoot the gun can they write the report can they de-escalate all very important skills but not valuable if they're not paired with the right type of values and ethics and so our screening spends equal amount of time in both and to be really honest with you call I'll, I'll tell you this I would rather take somebody a little less competent that has extremely strong values and work on their competence because I think values are much harder to correct once we're in our job. And I think too many organizations focus on what's on the paper and what they think the person can do. And I think that's the switch that we need to make in policing. It's not about how strong, fast, tough and smart you are it's about you're able to do those things and how do they line up with who you are as a human being and and, and as a society as a world and as, as police officers what we tend to focus in on are those technical skills and if you think about it jennifer from the moment that we're born we're taught to be competitive based on and measured upon those technical skills whether that's exams whether it's the ability to run faster or or shoot better or whatever it might be these are the technical skills and and, and i i just genuinely agree with you and i've always said that uh, I would rather have
have somebody who has got high levels of emotional intelligence and I will teach them the technical skills uh, than to have somebody with high levels of technical skills and have zero emotional intelligence. But it's very hard to teach emotional intelligence to somebody uh, in a short period of time. Uh, The other thing uh, for me really is around uh, this whole concept of uh, values. You, you, You talked about values yet again. Uh, and I, d- I think so many organizations don't understand the power of values and individuals don't understand the power of values. The amount of times I've sat, uh, you know, doing some leadership development with very, very senior leaders and I've asked them individually, what are your core values? And they will literally point to a poster on the wall and say, that's our values. And these are the organizational values. And my point is, well, no, they're not. They're the values that you've borrowed. What are your values? Who, how well, how self-aware are you as an individual? How much do you know about yourself? Uh, and they, they sort of really struggle. Uh, so what you're saying is you're testing these values in these people uh, by asking them to exemplify when they last accorded with this value or that value uh, to make sure that they accord with the values of SPS. And I think that's a commendable thing. And and you're so right. You know, the police service, um, I hope there are police forces around the, the world listening to what you're saying uh, and pick up on uh, what you do. I've certainly been working with police forces up and down the UK trying to bring about exactly that. So I should be watching with interest what goes on in the SPS for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you ask values-based or character-based questions and people don't have examples, if you're an organization that's looking for reasons to hire people that can't articulate that or maybe aren't as strong in their core in understanding that, you, it's easy to explain away, well, maybe they just haven't had that experience yet. Or, But I don't believe that's true. At this point in your life, you've had, whether it's in policing or in high school or university or in your own family, you have been challenged with a moral or ethical dilemma. You have had to overcome somebody doing something dishonest where you had to decide if you were going to do the right thing or not. And so I believe when we're asking our character-based questions, when people can't answer some of those questions, it's a flag. It's a flag not because they haven't experienced it. It's a flag because when they've been asked, the answer is not the answer they want to give. Because when they when they really look inside themselves and they had those challenges, they probably didn't do the thing they would like to be able to say in an interview. And so instead of telling us the not pretty answer, which is maybe they said nothing or did nothing, they just say that they don't really have an example of that. And so you really have to start to really sort of assess people and see and 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 it's more than like you said it's more than a score on a test those are really easy assessments it's a lot of work to do it uh what we're doing but the value of what we're doing is going to pay off for years to come yeah sometimes it's very difficult to measure these kind of skills that we're talking about, whether it's on values, whether it's on mindset, or whether it's on the ability to communicate or build rapport or build trust. It, what I get asked by so many companies when I go into a company and I talk about, you know, let's let's start uh, developing culture around emotional intelligence. One of the one of the things that they'll ask me is, how does that translate into increased performance for me, or increased bottom line, or increased profit? Uh, sometimes it's a leap of faith. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's interesting because one of the things in metrics, in policing, so you talk about, well, what's your crime rate look like? And, um, you know, what's happening in the community? And a lot of um, 
people might not want to hear this, but a lot of what happens when there's an ebb and flow in crime rate, a very slight portion of it has to do with the actual work that police are doing. When you see real major changes, you have to look at the socioeconomic issues that are happening. Uh, You know, what's happening in uh, certain neighborhoods could be to do with the you know, the demographics or has there been like even now with COVID, you know, some people would have thought, especially in Canada, oh, everyone's financially having difficulty. And so there's going to be increased property crime and stealing where in fact, when COVID initially happened, there was a massive drop in that. And part of that was because people were home in their homes all the time with their property all the time. So there was less opportunity to steal. But also the government came out and started giving everybody what was called the CERB, which was a financial amount to allow people to pay their bills and sustain themselves, maybe while the work wasn't there. And we saw massive drops in some of the crime rates. And so that had nothing to do with there being more police on the street or any kind of program policing did. It was a change in society that that resulted in that. And so when you look at metrics, for me, the policing metrics, I think we spend a little bit too much time on it. And when I say that in the sense that I think that you can manipulate a metric to tell whatever story it is you want to tell. So depending on what you add into the formula or you take out of the formula, you can make it look like you're doing any number of different things. From an organizational perspective, one of the things that I think we should be measuring, and you can't, I believe that you see this in the community, is how healthy and well your staff, your organization is. Are people coming to work? How many people do you have off sick? How many people are struggling with mental health or addiction issues or just regular injuries? So we know there's a major connection between PTSD, operational stress injuries, and actual physical injuries. So for example, we talked at the start of the podcast before you started uh, recording about my, um, my MS diagnosis. And so the research has shown that long-term exposure to stress, lack of sleep, lack of probably managing my life as a police officer and as a mother um, is a contributing, if not a causal factor to developing MS. And so one of the things that we want to look at is had I either felt that I could have taken some more rest at work, had I felt maybe a little bit more supported in the role that I had, could I have mitigated developing MS? And so I have MS, I'm coping with it now. I live a different lifestyle than I did years ago. But is that a measure if I was in a really healthy, uh, conscious policing organization that truly put wellness first, would I have developed that? So, you know, you talk about heart issues and stroke and high blood pressure, all associated to the way we do our job. And so when we talk about policing metrics, for me, what's the metric of how well we are? And then when we're well, we engage more calmly and compassionately with the community. So there's less outbursts. There's less likely to, I believe, violence in engaging in the community because we're healthier, calmer, better supported group of people who can conduct themselves that way in a very stressful environment. And that's the measure. Like, And you're right, it's really difficult to put your finger on it, but it's why people leave one organization for another. I believe people are coming to us because we've been really, really clear. We're going to care for you from the moment you get hired until your retirement and through your retirement. And I think people want to be cared for. 
And I think this is showing up more and more now. Uh, we, we have something called a great resignation that many that is happening around the world. Many countries are talking about it. And, and this is where people have recalibrated their priorities during, during the lockdown period, during the pandemic, and have asked themselves, what, what is really important for me? Is it the money that I get from my employer? Is that what's important to me, the financial reward? Or is it how I contribute and they contribute towards me? Is it about how I feel my experience with the employer and a lot of people now are leaving organizations because they're leaving the environment in which they operate because it's they feel it's a toxic environment or an unsafe environment or an environment where they don't feel appreciated or where there's no diversity cognitive diversity Uh, and when we talk about diversity you know many police forces here in the uk will be following targets to get x amount of percentage of this uh, this community or that community and um, I, I, dis- I disagree with that. I, I think actually what we should be chasing is cognitive diversity, where we create a culture where whoever is within our organization feels appreciated, valued, and is able to, to uh, share ideas that might be out of the norm, that create innovation. That is true, ad- true diversity. And if you create an organization like that, then people will look into that organization and say, hey, I might want to join that organization because it's really, really exciting. Uh, and, and that's it for me. I could not agree with you more. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, organizations, again, I think we talked about this, it's easy to use language and keywords because uh, they know what they have to say. So they talk about uh, organizations that are uh, believe in diversity and inclusion. And I love the word inclusion is the new one, right? And I couldn't agree with you more that it's not about what you look like. It's not about the religion that you come. I mean, it's, it, it's about your experience. So you can look a certain way but be extremely consistent in the way I think. And you can be from a different ethnic background, a different gender, a different race. But if you and I think exactly the same... All we've got there is group thinking, echo echo chambers. And so one of the things that I, I find really interesting when I watch organizations talk about diversity and inclusion, it's the fact that they do that. And what what... What I feel is the more important thing to talk about is, is your organization, does it have the courage and are you brave enough to let that diverse group of people who think differently come to your organization and actually have their ideas considered, have a safe space to share them, not be targeted for sharing a different thought or a belief. And that's where the rubber meets the road, truly. And I was in an organization for many, many years where they would hire the tick in the box group of people. But when you got into the organization, it was all about protect the organization. The organization's more important than you as an individual. You need to make sure you say and do things that doesn't put the organization at risk as if it was some living, breathing entity that the organization itself could be at risk. And I often got told, I heard this throughout my my career, I often got told I was too independent of a thinker, uh, that I thought outside the box, that I didn't tell kind of the company line. And there was a point in time where I was told by a senior person that I was likely not to be elevated or promoted any further until I changed uh, the way I communicated. And so I sat down with the senior leader and I said, I feel like I communicate very clearly. I am very direct 
in my communication. I think the words come out well and I, I converse very well. So I said, what is it exactly about my communication that I need to fix? And I was told it was the actual words coming out of my mouth. So it's not that I didn't know how to communicate. I was saying the wrong things. I was saying things that didn't necessarily support the organization continuing to conduct itself the way it was. It, they didn't want to hear the truth coming out of my mouth. It didn't want my opinion on the table. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, they're just catchphrases. If you don't have the environment where you actually care what anyone else has to say, then tick all the boxes you want. You are no better off and you're going to find that out. And so it, I, I find it laughable when I, when I watch people say that. And yet when I say, can you let anyone at any rank and any experience walk into the senior room and get to the table and have a seat at the table and say, hey, I have an opinion here or I have information here. And will you authentically, legitimately listen to what that person has to say? And if the answer is you've never done that before, then I don't believe that you're inclusive and I don't believe you're open to diversity. You just wanna hear what you wanna hear. One of my uh, catchphrases all the time when I was a senior leader in the police service was I might be the boss but I don't hold a monopoly on good ideas. Uh, and the good ideas very often come from those people who are doing it day in, day out. And this thing around diversity and inclusion, these have become like buzzwords, you know, catchphrases. And there's been an explosion of diversity and inclusion ex uh, specialists since the George Floyd uh, incident, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. And um, whilst it is a, an issue that we need to look at, we're looking at it, I believe, through the wrong end of the telescope. We're doing what we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and having identical conversations. Consequently, it makes me think maybe we're, we're having the wrong conversations. Maybe the conversation that we need to have is not to chase targets, not to get people of this community or that, that community or this orientation or that orientation into our organizations to, to make it look outwardly like, it lo like society is. Maybe what we need to have is a, an organization that is full of vibrant people who are willing to think beyond the traditional boundaries. Uh, and that's what creates a, a diverse organization. That's what true diversity is for me. Um, so it's a hobby horse that I get on all the time. I'm glad somebody else is also on the same hobby horse. Um, it has become a bit of an industry. Um, and I think that uh, diversity is more of an output and an outcome as opposed to uh, the, 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 the foundation of change. And foundation of change is creating the right culture which I'm so pleased to hear that SBS are doing that. I think, you know, you and I probably need to sit down in another year's time to see where you are and how it's all worked out for you. <laughs> right. uh, I think that uh, it's exciting times. I wish I was in Canada. I'd join tomorrow and uh, help you with that transition. It sounds fascinating. Uh, I wish you all the, well, uh, all the best with that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, uh, Jennifer. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. We may just do this again in several months down the track and see how you're going on. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Cole. Much appreciated uh, the time and actually look forward to uh, maybe giving you an update in uh, the next little while. I'd love to. Maybe we'll save that for series two, hey? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.